Welcome to Meet the Professors. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. We gathered 11 practicing oncologists to present real but de-identified breast cancer cases from their practices to our faculty of Drs. Charles Geyer, John Mackey, Julie Graylow, and Tom Budd. To begin, Dr. Sam Bobrell presented a case to Drs. Mackey and Geyer. NP is a 63-year-old woman. Six years ago, she was found to have a stage 1 invasive ductal carcinoma of the left breast with an intraductal component involving approximately 50% of the tumor. The final tumor size was 0.9 centimeters. Sentinel nodes were negative. This was an estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor negative tumor. It was HER2 new positive. The tumor was reported to be diploid and also had a low percentage of cells in the S phase. At that time, the patient was treated with a lumpectomy followed by breast irradiation. Radiation therapy was completed in September of 2001. She did not receive any adjuvant therapy. In 2007, February of last year, she was found to have an abnormal mammogram and excisional biopsy of the left breast. Again, showed a 0.9 centimeter tumor, which was described as being an infiltrating carcinoma. It was estrogen receptor negative, progesterone receptor negative, and HER2 new positive. It was also reported to be positive with a fish assay. The patient elected to undergo bilateral mastectomies. I saw her again, and at that time, I offered her adjuvant therapy. There was no evidence of metastatic disease. She was given chemotherapy with cytoxin and taxotere, followed by Herceptin. And what's her situation right now? She's doing great. She's on a year of Herceptin, so she's still on the Herceptin. Can you talk a little bit more about the woman herself and her sort of life situation? She's done well. She initially thought she was going to be cured when she was treated for breast cancer six years ago. You took care of her the first time? Yes. Now, I assume she thought it, quote, came back, but I guess the thinking is this was a second primary? I don't think we know. Both tumors were estrogen receptor negative, progesterone receptor negative, and HER2 new positive. Similar histologies. In an irradiated breast, she did not have a mastectomy originally, so it's possible that this is just a recurrence of the first tumor or a new tumor. Chuck, how often do we see recurrence in the breast like this as opposed to a second primary in any way to differentiate it genomically or any other way? You know, I think that's always been an issue about how you classify an IBTR. You know, is it the first one coming back or a true second occurrence? And, you know, the only way that I think you know, quote, for sure that it is a new primary is if it appears to be different. Obviously, everyone's thinking, oh, well, maybe... With genomics, we might be able to differentiate the two, but I'm not aware of any formal research efforts really trying to do that where people have sufficient numbers of primary tumors stored and sufficient numbers of IBTRs stored to look at that. It's an interesting question. I don't know practically how much of an impact it would have on what you do. Because early on, I think most of us assume it is a recurrence of the disease and treat it along those lines. The further out it is, the less likely that seems probable. And then you've got that in-between where you just don't know. She had an extent of disease workup? She had a metastatic workup at this time. There was absolutely nothing else to suggest other sites of metastatic disease. John, what I thought was really interesting about this was almost like the historical aspect that she almost had the identical situation in 2001 and 2007. Amazingly, she even had the same tumor size, 0.9 centimeter, node negative, And I want to ask you both about this whole issue. And then she comes back six years later with the exact same numbers. And I thought it was kind of interesting in terms of reflecting where we've come in oncology in six years. John? 
Well, if I could just make one comment. In Alberta, we've got a captive population of cancer patients. They can only come and get treatment basically in centres that are owned and run by the government. So we have the ability to look at how these women do over time. And in fact, since 1997, we've routinely done HER2 testing on all women in Alberta with newly diagnosed breast cancer at one laboratory. So we were able to look at this question of in-breast recurrence, and it turned out we haven't published these data, but we've sent in an abstract for ASCO, but we looked at all the factors for in-breast recurrence, and it turns out that in the multivariate analysis, the only thing that comes to the top is HER2 positivity. So in breast conservation situations where a woman has a HER2 positive tumor, they are much more likely to have an in-breast recurrence than any other population we could identify. Now, how would your group classify this case? Well, because of those data, which admittedly we didn't know until just a few weeks ago, we would say this is almost certainly a recurrence of her initial primary, simply because we see that it's her too that seems to be driving these local recurrences. So, I mean, it's a simplistic view of really what a new breast cancer is. But at the end of the day, I think this is a great case and is just pointing out how we do change management over a few years with some new research results. Are there any sort of practical implications in terms of if this really is a recurrence as opposed to a second primary? You're going to really theoretically purchase this. Well, the, the practical same. implication is one that has not previously been really well reported in the literature. I mean, we know that HER2 positivity is a poor prognostic factor, you're more likely to have a recurrence of some kind, but the results that we found were so striking that we're wondering if in future, if other people can replicate these results, maybe having a HER2 positive breast cancer might ultimately be a relative contraindication to breast conservation. Were you able to calculate the local recurrence rate in HER2 positive patients? Yes, we've done exactly that. Well, how much was it? Well, you know, I think we should, you know, wait till the formal presentation, hmm. uh, if you don't mind. But, yeah. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say that, but you're not that. Yeah. But the well, you know, I, I guess, let's answer. put it this way. I mean, would you say that the sort of going concept is about a 10% local recurrence rate after breast cancer? I mean, obviously, the well, NSA... It, it all depends on how long you wait. So, so it's a time and it depends on your therapeutic interventions. You know, we're not seeing a lot of IBTR short, you know, at our four or five year follow up on the Herceptin trials. These, I have a number of patients who did not receive. So there's going to be, it's a moving target, as is always the case with this stuff. One thing I think that I would be curious about, I don't know if you can say it, would be kind of the median time to IBTR of a HER2 positive patient population versus a HER2 negative. Because Sandy Swain had looked at our database, looking at the contralateral side for patients who have you know, ER negative breast cancers, their contralateral breast cancer tends to be ER negative as well. So presumably, whatever is going on in the woman to make her develop a characteristic tumor is still going to be there when she gets tumor number two. So I don't know that the fact that the tumor that developed the same means it's a recurrence and not just the same milieu is there. And I think particularly when you get something out this far, but, you know, you can wonder about these things still. That's a good point, though, John. This is six years later. We think about recurrence from HER2 disease, I think more two, three years later. What did you see in terms of time? Well, we have a median of six years follow-up on this series. And it looks linear to us, so I'm not particularly surprised that the in-breast recurrence happens at this point. But the reason we've got these data and other people don't is, I think, because we started doing HER2 testing a little earlier than was probably warranted.
I kind of want to burn through a couple issues that this case I thought brought up. And the first, Chuck, is the issue of management of the patient, HER2 positive, node negative, smaller tumor, classic situation, 0.9 centimeters. Where are we right now with that, and what do we know about the impact of trastuzumab in these patients and the risk of recurrence without it? Many of the trials, of course, excluded these patients in the area where we're extrapolating data. Now, the one trial that this patient would have been eligible for would have been CIRG006, and I've not seen breakout of data in subsets. I really don't know how many of these small tumors actually got on the trial. 63. Okay. So, you know, there is information on that. Well, we didn't analyze that specific question because it was 63 and among three arms... What are you going to do? But we did have actually patients who had tumors less than five millimeters on that trial as well. And what do we know right now in terms of been a couple of reports, but not that much data on what the actual prognosis of these patients? Well, yeah, last year, San Antonio, right. 2006, there were a couple of reports of series that had that number in their tables. If you looked at it, they broke it out by different types. And it's looking like that these women probably still have... 15%, maybe 20% risk of recurrence, possibly. And I think the thing to me that a lot of people are struggling with, should we do it or not do it, my problem with not doing it is I don't see that there's any plausible reason or any data to suggest that the hazard reduction, the relative hazard reduction would be less. So even if you say, okay, I'll give you only a 10% risk of recurrence, if that can be halved, a 5% absolute is still very substantial to me. And so I tend to treat these women and not really worry about, you know, is it worth it? Because a 50% relative hazard reduction is going to be worth it in just about anybody with any kind of risk at all to me. What's your non-protocol chemotherapy with patients in HER2-positive disease nowadays? I don't spend a lot of my time trying to decide which is my regimen. I find that, you know, I kind of like the array of available options because particularly when there seems to be very, very similar efficacy and you can work on the toxicity side and different aspects, you know, broadly speaking, if you're just talking about what I do in HER2 positive breast cancer, I do think that you would ask the question about what is the optimal regimen. And, you know, my criteria for optimal is efficacy has to be there. Then once you get comparable efficacy results, then I look to the toxicity. And that's why I personally consider TCH now to be optimal because it addresses both quite well. John, what regimen are you using nowadays? Well, I'd have to agree with Chuck. I mean, we have a lot of evidence that certainly Herceptin is effective. And then we've got a suite of trials that all suggest that you can reduce the risk of recurrence. In terms of efficacy, there was some new data at San Antonio from the French, the PAX-04 study, that showed that they gave a HERA-like approach after some pretty aggressive chemotherapy. And actually, despite the fact it was a relatively small trial, they saw only a relatively modest risk reduction, although with wide confidence intervals. And that kind of was consistent with the second arm of the NCCTG trial, which was the sequential AC, then four cycles of Taxol, and then only then beginning the Herceptin arm where it looked like if you gave the taxane together with the Herceptin, you were getting a bit of a bigger bang for your buck. So my 
efficacy preference if you sort of look at all of the data we have so far is that certainly concurrent Herceptin with the taxane looks like it's probably a bit more efficacious than a strict HERA-like approach. So that's my first bias with efficacy. Then if we look among the concurrent taxane Herceptin regimens that we've got, the one big trial that looks like it's the most safe option would be BCRG006, specifically the TCH arm. So, you know, all things being equal, that's my standard of practice. Chuck? Since this is a case thing, I did want to just share sort of an interesting story. One of our medical students has a sister who was recently discovered, a young woman in her late 20s, an athlete who had ER negative, HER2 positive breast cancer, and remarkably, she found this thing was seven or eight millimeters in size. It was small. She was able to detect. She felt it. Yeah, she found this wow. thing. I mean, it's really remarkable. But of course, she was making the rounds, and she went to several East Coast academic institutions and consistently was recommended anthracycline followed by weekly taxol with her septin. And so he, being a medical student, was very much a proponent of that. And he called us, Norman and I, to ask what we thought. You know, and I said, well, I think that's certainly a safe position, but did they talk about the toxicity side the potential there. And it turned out that was really what initiated the call to us. They were kind of looking for someone to give permission to think about avoiding the anthracycline. So ultimately, she saw two, quote, private practitioners, and they both said TC, Herceptin, and they went with that. TC, cyclophosphamide? Yeah, with cyclophosphamide. Yeah, that's another thing we started to hear a lot. You know, I hope that this woman, when she had those recommendations of anthracycline, had them explain the alternative and non-anthracyclines and the numbers. It really would bother me, John, if that wasn't the case. I mean, I think people at least need to know about this. Mm-hmm. It's becoming an increasingly important question because we're doing a good job at early detection. Breast cancer is becoming a small node-negative disease. That's the majority of what I see in my clinic. I would hope that's the same what you're seeing in yours. And therefore, when you're dealing with the possibility of these women you know, being cured by the surgeon before they ever get to you, you want to have a non-toxic option as much as possible. And short-term toxicities, in my mind, most people can put up with, but it's the long-term, potentially lethal toxicities that are my biggest concern. And we know that anthracyclines equal leukemia at some rate. And it's 0.04% per year in the overview. The Canadians had a particularly toxic regimen, which no Canadians are using now, I might point out, but it's still referred to as the Canadian regimen, where we're using 120 of epirubicin per month for six months, and that's 720 of epirubicin, if my math is correct. And the leukemia rate is 1.5%. And, you know, that's lethal second leukemias because they're untreatable, as you know. And in addition, the cardiotoxicity, sure, no one in the clinical trials, to my knowledge, has died of Herceptin-associated cardiotoxicity, but it's a hard diagnosis to make. What exactly leads to a patient death? The follow-up is short. It's sort of median of three years in these women. And we know that with time, even healthy women get cardiovascular disease. And we know that we've decreased their cardiac reserve. It's a term that basically the cardiologists think about a lot. Anything that reduces cardiac reserve will ultimately, when the next insult inevitably comes, lead to more problems. So we're thinking, especially for this young athletic woman who's got potentially another 70 years of life ahead of her, that you'd like to do something that you, you know, would think would be least likely to set her up for a second hit. 
John, what about your approach to no negative under centimeters down to about five millimeters or yes, beyond? Yes, we write provincial guidelines in Alberta because the winters are long and there's nothing else to do. <laughs> so we have put together a statement that women with HER2-positive disease greater than five millimeters should be offered adjuvant Herceptin. And the choice of regimen is sort of up to the prescribing physician, but we're seeing a real attention to long-term toxicity. And for that reason, in these young women, people are being offered non-anthracycline options. And the two most common ones seem to be the TC Steve Jones regimen followed by Herceptin or the TCH regimen. I just have a question going back to just the specific chemotherapy for the patient. BCRG006 utilized Carbo for six cycles. And we're talking about you know extrapolating Jones data and adding trastuzumab. His trial was four cycles... How are we doing this? Well, personally, I use TCH where C is the carbo because we've got a thousand patient experience with it. And as you know, Steve Jones' trial was done in the pre-Herceptin era, pre-adjuvant Herceptin era, and none of these patients got concurrent Herceptin. I think that U.S. oncology is looking at doing at least a phase two in that population using TC where C happens to be cyclophosphamide. But at present, again, I'm biased towards the concurrent Herceptin administration, and the only data set we have in a non-anthracycline regimen comes from the TCH, where C is carbo. There's preclinical reasons to think carbo is a good drug in combination with Herceptin, so this is really why the trial was done. Uh, BCIRG used patients had to be fish positive in a single lab, Michael Press's lab, but NSABP, if, uh, I think it was NSABP, allowed 3-plus Hercept test to be a standard as well, or HER2 positive by fish. Where are we today? Should we rely on a 3-plus, or do we need a fish on everybody? I mean, the FDA has said either or, and I personally think that's a reasonable position because there is such high concordance between 3-plus IHC staining and fish results. And my pathologist continues to tell me that that's the most economical way for his lab to process specimens is to do the IHC first and then do the fish on reflex. So there's no data that I can present or I've seen that tells me that he's wrong and that he should do the fish, that there is this idea of greater precision. So I'm comfortable with that. There are clearly people who believe that the IHC is so fraught, why even go that route? So I think to me right now, the FDA's position is a reasonable one. And indeed, on the Beth trial, the adjuvant trial that we're doing with CIRG, the agreement has been that patients will be considered eligible if they are fish positive or IHC3+, plus, because most of them, it's going to be, they will both be positive. You know, those rare patients who are fish negative, but IHC3+, plus will be eligible. And I would treat those patients. John, agree, disagree, or in between? Well, I think on a pragmatic basis, we have to accept that someone with a 3-plus in a good laboratory probably is going to be fish positive. The two are likely to be concordant and probably should receive trastuzumab. The real issue is what's a good laboratory? Have you ever seen a pathologist stand up and say that they don't run a good show? And, you know, the issue is that immunohistochemistry is a test that if done poorly, and it's very easy to do poorly, you can get results that are all over the map. And so my preference is to see fish, which is, you know, quantitative, it's more expensive, it's more hassle, but at least you know for sure what you're getting if it's done according to the FDA instructions. But 
The reality is that, you know, there's no sign from all of the trials that there's a population that is fish negative IHC 3 plus that's not benefiting. So I think if you think that a good lab is doing this 3 plus, I don't see the need for fish confirmation. Alan, just wondering if we could change the case a little bit. Just imagine if the woman were younger, say 48, the tumor were bigger, say two centimeters. Let's say she had two positive nodes. Are you still willing to go with TCH rather than ACTH? And what do we know about the long-term leukemia risk associated with six cycles of carboplatin? John? So if this woman were 48 with a T1N1 tumor, M0, I would still use TCH. Yeah, there's no indication that when we look at the forest plots that women with node-positive disease don't benefit just as much as women with node-negative disease. We couldn't find a subgroup that didn't have benefit. So as far as I can tell, it's a biological effect rather than an anatomic effect. As for the risk of carboplatinum, well, you're right, carboplatinum is an alkylator. But to assess the leukemogenicity, there haven't been a lot of adjuvant studies done in any indication with long-lived populations to know. At the end of the day, we've already had four leukemias in the anthracycline-treated arms and no leukemias in the TCH-treated patients. But that's a two-to-one ratio. That's 2,000 patients versus one. So I guess you could say two leukemias from the anthracyclines to none. What does that mean? Well, you know, the anthracycline leukemia rate is entirely consistent with that 0.04% per year that we've seen from the overview. So that's what we expect. You know, we just haven't seen it on the TC regimen where C is carbo with Steve Jones, and he's got 4,500 patient years of experience with that trial. And we haven't seen it with the TCH to date. Well, just a quick comment on that. I mean, when I say I think TCH is optimal, I do present the sequential anthracycline taxane regimens. And I think particularly in women under the age of 50, the risk of cardiotoxicity in the window that we've had time to observe is less in those women. I mean, something that I think is very important when you're making that distinction is, you know, the information from our study. I mean, we really do show that advancing age, presence of hypertension, even the level, the entry LVEF really substantially pick out patients who are going to get into trouble. I mean, you know, some of the, you have an LVEF 50 to 54 percent going in in our study, which used every three-week taxol. I mean, it's always that caveat, this is our population. I mean, that's 17 percent cardiac event rate. We were going to be shut down if we exceeded 4 percent. And so in our data, we can identify patients who are at 6 percent, 12 percent, 17 percent. Now, this patient would be 2 percent. But I think she needs to understand, while she is at lower risk, there is a risk there that is not there with TCH. And so far, I have found that when, you know, again, it's my presentation, I have biases, I guess, but the women I talk to when I go through this, they so far are heavily going to TCH. They like the idea of not having their heart. So I, that's why I consider it optimal, but I'm not at the position where I'm saying the anthracycline crowd is wrong either at this point. There isn't enough data to make that statement. I just think it's tough for me to sustain the argument with the differing toxicities personally.